You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey kids, you are watching or listening to Wake Up Call the Podcast, and I am your host, Christina Previtt, and this is a special edition of the Hashtag Fem Doctor Series, and my guest today is Dr. Rashmi Advani, MD, who is a gastroenterologist in New York. Welcome, Rashmi. I should say Dr. Advani, because you yeah, can like that. Call me Rashmi. I mean, I, I, love, I love how you actually, uh, you pronounce my name just perfectly. So uh, yeah, I'm I am a GI fellow um, in New York. Uh, So I'm currently still in my training uh, of three years. I'm in my second year um, of the three year general training. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your amazing podcast series. I think this initiative is really, really cool. And I totally support it. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. And I think I forgot to mention that the way I found you was on Instagram and you have a really cool handle, Dr. Scopes with Guts, Dr. Scopes with Guts. So everybody should really check you out because you're very prolific on Instagram with your videos. (laughs) I appreciate that. I mean, I've definitely taken a lot of advice and like, uh, inspiration from other platforms and other people. And I just try to create my own thing and something to help, uh, educate my followers and connect with my community. And, you know, it's just a really fun way to just kind of get yourself out there and, you know, impact, impact the community in more ways than, you know, outside of your clinic or outside of the endoscopy suite, which was, it's pretty fun. I took the liberty of stalking you on LinkedIn as well, not just Instagram. (laughs) And you do seem to have a a varied background. And maybe what you could also do for me is I don't really understand what the usual trajectory is. So I don't really know, you know, what is a resident? What is a fellow? You know, can you sort of take me through that too? Yeah, of course. And that's such a good question, because I feel like even people in medicine, um, like unless you're pursuing a particular field or subspecialty, it's like you yourself don't even know how long or what stages are which. But anyway, so um, uh, in order to apply to medical school, you have to complete about a bachelor's or, you know, uh, arts or sciences, and it could be really being anything. Um Med schools actually prefer people who are not even uh, science majors or minors. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Do you have to have certain science requirements met though? Okay. Yeah, you do have to do the basic classes like, you know, chemistry, orgo, all the, you know, the, the standard ones. But if you're like an arts major, philosophy major and stuff, and you, you have other interests that's actually looked upon favorably, you, uh, you have to complete college and then medical school. Um, is usually four years. There are some accelerated programs that have come out in the recent years that are three years long, um, uh, which is insane. Actually, I don't know how. Yeah. 
but you know, it, it's being done. And um, after that, then you choose a residency of your choice, depending on your interest. So if you, you know, most people either decide that they want to do something surgical or non-surgical and um, the surgical side of the equation, you know, there's several residencies and they all range anywhere from like three years to seven years or eight years. And you're still a resident, you're called a resident. And the the medical specialty, so you go into internal medicine and then, you know, usually internal medicine is three years. I think the shortest residency is three years. And then after residency, you know, if you are, crazy enough, <laughs> excuse me, and you want to go through extra training. And, and you know, if you have a passion, everything about it, um, you can apply to something called a fellowship. And once you graduate residency, you can be a practicing attending in that, you know, whatever residency you decided to do, like a dermatology or ob or something. But um, if you want to do a fellowship, then you go into the fellowship and the fellowship can be anywhere from one year to four or five years. So, you know, and then there are even sub fellowships after that. So it does go a little bit deep and it could be very niche based and it could be very, very specific, like, you know, like a like a hand surgeon or someone who only works with like certain tendons or something. You know, you can you can get very specialized people like that. But that's what a fellow a fellow is. So it's not just an extension of a residency. It's actually going, it's specializing in something a little further than what you would have done just as a, a resident. Exactly. I mean, like, so for example, so in GI, the only way to become a gastroenterologist is you have to go through in a three-year internal medicine residency and then go into a three-year fellowship of GI. Um, and that's the way to get there. But otherwise, say I, if I didn't decide to do fellowship, I would be in a, a general medicine attending or I'd be a primary care physician. Really, I mean, I think you could, a lot of specialties, you can make what you want to make of it. Like you, you could work in the hospital, you could work in private, you could uh, see patients like some some days a week. So I think there's a lot of flexibility in that in that way. So for example, my favorite one of my favorite topics is plastic surgery. So that person would go into a surgical residency and then they would be they would have a fellowship for plastic surgery. Pretty much. I mean there's that there that's the traditional way into plastic surgery. There is there are more streamlined programs and they're they're very far and few between and very competitive, but you can get into like a straight, you know, plastic surgery route, but you definitely do need to still do your general residence general surgery residency, you know, and then go there. But the training is long and say like if you wanted to do specifically for plastics, if you want to do something like face. Um, or nose. I mean, that's an extra like they they call it like a sub sub fellowship or a sub fellowship. So, um, and that could, that could take anywhere from uh, one year to a couple years. So, do you have to as a um, an MD? Do you have to do a residency? Is that a requirement? In order to take care of patients, yes. Um, to to be a clinician, to do anything involving like direct contact of patient with you and a patient. Yes. Um, okay. You, yeah. But if so you, you have your degree, yeah. but you wouldn't, um, I, 
what is the certification that you get to be able to, to treat patients? Do you have to get some additional certification? I think you just have like a, a certification of completion of a training or, and then you essentially take your board exams. So I, I think, um, uh, so after your training, whatever, say residency or fellowship, you take a board exam and that makes you board certified. So once you're board certified, you have, you know, that, that extra, like, okay, this is what I do. This is my specialty kind of thing. But, um, I've had colleagues who after medical school decided that they didn't, they didn't want to go into, which is a gamble, but you know, they didn't want to go into residency and they wanted to do something either in pharma or, um, some went to Wall Street, or, you know, some even went to um, legal, the legal track, so uh, or business. So I think there's like a, a lot of things that you can do with your MD, not just um, be a clinician. So basically, if you don't ever do a residency, you just won't get a job because nobody would hire you, right? No. <laughs> Not as someone interacting with patients, like you can't, I mean, if you want to see patients and you want to take care of patients and you, you, there's no other way around it, you have to go into some sort of residency. But, um, but if you do something that's non-clinical and like kind of more consulting and stuff, but you could definitely use your MD for that. So when you're in med school, are you basically learning more like book work and, you know, facts and then you learn the actual how and the application when you get to the residency, or do you get a lot of that application when you're in medical school too? You start, it starts in medical school. It starts like midway through your medical school. Some of them actually integrate um, that a little bit more, especially in the last few years where they realize that um, it's not like, yes, you can have all the book knowledge, but being able to apply all of it, like, should actually start earlier. So um, I like even first and second year medical students are having clinical exposure to patients and, you know, obviously in a very monitored setting, but um, yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it's built into a medical school curriculum. Okay. Yeah. I did always have a secret desire to take the um, class where you get to um, cut up the cadavers. <laughs> I know that sounds really no. morbid. No, it doesn't. I mean, I think it's it's not for you to be curious about the structures of the human body. And I think that's a, even a, you just take just take anatomy and physiology. I think if you just go and like enroll yourself into like maybe one of those college classes, I think you'd be able to do but it. But I don't get to cut up a body, right? Um, I don't think you get to do that. Cadaver labs. I mean, it's probably <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> I think it's, you know, a lot of families are kind enough to donate like their loved one bodies and into the cadaver labs. And um, I think as a medical student, that's something that you have the opportunity to um, have exposure to. But, you know, actually, that's a good question. I don't know if college students can do cadaver labs. I don't think so. Is that a requirement though in med school or is, is there some way to avoid that or do you have to do that? Um, I think you would have to. It's just like literally one of the core classes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I mean, to be very fair, even as a first year medical student, and, you know, you're gung-ho about being a doctor and everything. There are people who will faint as soon as, like, really? you know, they see a, one of those dead bodies or they see a little blood or something. And it doesn't mean that they're not fit to be a doctor. It's just 
you know, there are some responses, sympathetic uh, and parasympathetic responses that our body elicits when we're like shocked about something or we're like excited about something. So <laughs> did you see somebody faint in, in your class? Um, I saw someone close to fainting. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely. Oh, man. <laughs> oh God. That, but, they probably never lived that down either. That's got to be. You know, you know, it's actually ironic. That person ended up going into a surgical really? room <laughs> and they're doing amazing. Their patients love them. <laughs> that is so funny. Are they all old people? The cadavers? No, they range. It, it ranges um, young, old, different genders. I don't, we don't have pediatric uh, cadavers. I think just like morally probably doesn't sit very well, but, mm -hmm. yeah. but um yeah, but I think we have a bunch. Most of uh, us have like adult cadavers, like in their like forties, fifties, sixties, even eighties. The structures are all the same. They all like look the same internally. We all look the same inside, by the way. Like it's just a bunch of pink and you know nerves and vessels and stuff. I know. I'm just always curious. I don't know why it's like this perverse curiosity about you know what it looks like in there. I think you can YouTube it. <laughs> I do. I, I watch <laughs> surgeries on YouTube. I mean, I kind of feel like I could do one, but <laughs> I, I'm to totally kidding there. Thank you for uh, satisfying or indulging my perverse curiosity about that. Um, I'm sure some other people that are in other professions have had some of curiosity about that too. So you explained to us what residency is and what it means to be a fellow, but let's go through what you've done because it looks like you were an EMT at some point. I was, yeah, it was, it was well, um, I was, um, uh, in during my gap year, I, I completed college and I was like, you know, I kind of wanted to use this year to like do things that I really, really enjoyed. Um, one of a few of the things involved, you know, teaching dance and still dancing and tutoring in English and math. But then the other part of me was like, I really need to start learning some medical terminology because if I don't know something or I mean, I should know at least the basics, right? So um, I enrolled myself into some EMT classes and um, it was the best decision I made. I, um, it, it just took a couple of months for us to get certified and then, and then you, you're back, you're on, you're on the field. So uh, if you work in the ambulance, that's something like very high intensity um, thinking on your feet kind of thing. And then um, if you work on the receiving end of a hospital, like you work with a particular hospital, particular service. Anyway, I used my um, curiosity in medicine to, you know, kind of segue myself into becoming an EMT kind of thing. And I think that actually, if anything, it only benefited me because when I got into medical school, I knew all these terms and I was like, okay, great. Like I'm, I'm not, at least I'm not starting from like complete scratch. There is some sort of knowledge up there. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting that you felt like you needed to do that because a lot of people would just assume, well, I'm going to learn it when I go to medical school, but you wanted to be ahead of things. Yeah, I feel like because for my own, I know myself, like, I think you, you are your biggest kind of enemy and your own biggest critic in, in so many ways. And I, yes, you're right that if I didn't have that experience, I would have totally learned everything I need to learn in medical school. But I think my anxiety was just like, you know, I needed 
you need to learn something, Rashmi. You cannot let this year to go to waste. And I think I had to do something medical related in order for me to feel like I was somewhat prepared. Well, I think it was actually a really good idea because you could have done it and realized, I really hate this. <laughs> this is not what I want to do. But it sounds like you loved it. Yeah, I really, I really, really enjoyed my experience. I think um, just like, I don't know, learning the, the, BLS, ACLS algorithm, knowing what, what are the components to like helping revive someone or save someone. I think that's the core of medicine, right? Like you, you know, that's if someone's heart stops, like what are some of the things that you do? Okay. All right. You need to compressions. You need to do this. You need to do that. So, um, that is something I was like, you know, at least I have this skill. Right. And, I, I'm going into medicine because I want to save people. I want to help people. What is what is the best way to do this and learning how to, you know, bring someone back to life or, you know, revive them in some way. So I think that was like at the crux of it. But I want to ask you, did you always know or maybe better question is when did you know in your lifetime that you wanted to be a doctor? Oh, um, not until much later. I think I, um, initially actually I thought I was going to be a teacher because I come from a line of teachers. Like my mother's a teacher, my father was a teacher and I, um, I just loved sharing knowledge and educating everything, anything or anything I could possibly learn. If there was a way for me to communicate that and like teach it to others. And so they could also understand it too. Um, that was like really exciting to me. So, um, and then I was like, I really liked pets. I really liked animals. So I just want, I thought maybe, um, I could become like a veterinarian or something. And then slowly, slowly, um, my, my, my friends were like, you know, like you're really good in the sciences. She's, they're like, you know, you really have like this critical thinking skill. Like you're great with people. Like, have you considered, you know, being a doctor, or being a physician? And you know, it's I I make a joke because, uh, you know, I'm South Asian, and a bunch of us, um, admittedly, are in medicine. And you know, there's a there's a running joke that you know your parents, you know, asked you to become a doctor, and that's why you're a doctor, but. I, I actually told my mother, I was like, you know, when I was actually thinking about becoming a doctor, I was like, you know, what are your, I asked her, I was like, what are your thoughts about me becoming a doctor? And she was like, are you sure you don't want to become like a lawyer or an engineer or something? And I was like, why? She's like, well, you know, it's a very long road and, you know, there's a lot of challenges and I, you know, all this stuff. And I also come from a family of lawyers and engineers. So she was like, you know, you have so many people that can give you inspiration and connections and stuff. She's like, you already have that kind of stuff. So I was like, no, I kind of want to do something different. So I shadowed doctors just to see if I really liked it. I went, I volunteered in the emergency room at Cornell and I really, really liked it. I liked the kind of thinking on your feet. Um, I liked, you know, the, the appreciation, the gratitude and the quick, you know, patients getting better after, you know, something that your whatever knowledge is in your noggin, like that you use that to help them. So I, I, I found that fascinating. I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. Um, and I just from that, that point on, I just kind of like took a step by step. But no, there wasn't a really 
big aha moment for me. I think a lot of people had an aha moment, but me, it was more like a culmination of experiences. It was just a natural progression. Yeah. I just felt like this is the best way I can use my ability to critically think or, you know, and even teaching. Like I, I found that teaching, my love for teaching and love for sharing that knowledge can also, was also heavily incorporated into the field of medicine. And I, I knew that this was the best way I could help people and contribute to society. So, so when did you start figuring out what you wanted your specialty to be? <laughs> I, I, so for me, I feel like I'm always like late in the game. I'm always like the last one to like make a decision. And um, the same thing with uh, gastroenterology. So I, when I, I went into medical school thinking uh, I was good with my hands. I was like, okay, I'll become a surgeon. And I was like, what is the coolest surgeon that you could ever be? And I was like, a neurosurgeon, right? <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. So. <laughs> exactly, right? You're like the coolest type of surgeon. I want to be that surgeon. And I, I mean, I did some research in um, the neuroscience lab at my college at Hunter. So I really liked it. I was like, this is really cool. And then um, slowly, slowly in medical school, I was like, you know, actually, I kind of like the heart and I like the physiology and I, I felt I fell in love with the heart. And I wasn't really, really excited about the brain. I mean, it was cool, right? But I was like, the heart's really even more cool. So then I was like, you know what, I'm going to become a cardiothoracic surgeon. That's it. I'm going to do that. And then it's, <laughs> and then years, a few years went by and I started my surgical rotation. I was like, man, I don't like the surgical like rotation. I, I don't, I just didn't vibe with the environment. I didn't vibe with like the way I was thinking about the patients. And I, I really wanted to have like a different approach to my patients. And I was like, okay, I still like doing things with my hands. So what can I do with my hands and still think about my patients the way I want to think about them? So I fell into internal medicine and in internal medicine, there's really like only a few routes you can take if you want to really work with your hands and do procedures. One of them is GI. The other one is interventional cardiology, which is like, you know, takes a while to get there. And then some, you know, pulmonary critical care. So this is all very nuanced stuff. But essentially, um, I really liked learning about G. So I, I, I'm, I'm such a physiology geek. So I, I knew that like, it had to be something that, that was like more physiology based and GI um, really attracted me, but really late in the game. Like I didn't even know I wanted to do GI until like I was a resident and most people know they want to do GI like in medical school because it's like so competitive and, you know, et cetera. But you knew that you wanted to play with toys and gadgets. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, I liked playing video games. I still love playing video games. I'm really good with my hands and I, I have long fingers. So I was like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe this could help uh, someone in a meaningful way. So, um, and I, GI is really exciting. It's, it's so, such a fertile ground of medicine. And we're doing so many things now that, you know, previously were done by surgeons. And I mean, offering that type of minim more minimally invasive option to patients uh, while achieving the same type of therapy, I mean, that's pretty cool. So when you were had your first introduction to 
doing gastroenterology work, like the, playing with the gadgets, were you doing like the usual things I think we associate with GIs, uh, you know, endoscopies and colonoscopies? What else? <laughs> what else do you yeah, do? There's a lot. Yeah. So, so as a resident, as an internal medicine resident, you normally don't do any procedures because that's your, I mean, at gastroenterology type procedures. Um, you can do other procedures um, as a resident, but um, the endoscopy and colonoscopy, you start getting exposure as a first year fellow. So that was me maybe a year and a half ago. I had really touched a endoscope maybe like once or twice and played around with the dials here and there. But my first expo, my first like, you know, experience was um, about a year and a half ago. And since, and really there's two, there's only two orifices you could really, (laughs) you can only go through the top or the bottom. So when we go through the top, it's called an upper endoscopy. And we also have like different tools that we can use to like, you know, diagnose lesions, take biopsies, treat bleeds, and that could, we could do upper, we could do it uh, through the colonoscopy as well. And really, I mean, um, we have a lot more, we have a surplus of types of devices that we can use to try to get into like little, little tiny spaces into the GI tract and do therapies and stuff. So it's really, it's actually really, really awesome. And I, um, I, w- I wish a lot more people knew about it, because I, even myself, until I really expressed a lot of interest into it, I was like, I wasn't really fully aware of like the potential um, of procedures and gadgets and tools and all these other, you know, exciting new technologies. But um, I'm learning it slowly. I mean, I mean, I'm still learning it. I still don't know all the tools, but. So what are some of the things that um, if this is such a thing that are trending right now in your field? Um, so some of the things that are trending are, um, so there's a few things. So one of them is, so people can have, uh, hernias. Um, so they can have like a certain type of hernia where the stomach goes into the upper part of the chest and causes a lot of reflux and, um, a lot of discomfort and people, uh, you know, have trouble eating, um, and, you know, usually a hernia repair, sometimes most, it's mainly done through a surgeon in the past, typically traditionally in the past it's done by a surgeon, they poke holes in the stomach, and then they, you know, they use that, that method to repair the hernia. So they take the stomach and they kind of wrap it around the esophagus just to kind of create that barrier. But in GI, uh, we found a way to do that endoscopically. We found a way to like, you know, use our endoscope and use a tool where we can create a, a hernia repair um, endoscopically without doing any of these incisions. So that's one really cool thing. Um, that sounds nice. No scars. No scars. Yeah. And, um, you know, length of stay in the hospital shorter. Patient outcomes are essentially the same. same. Even um, like long-term complications are... Um, a lot reduced compared to the surgical method. And I, you know, I think having our surgical colleagues is still important because there are cases that we're not able to do that endoscopically and that's when they come in. But that's one of them. The other types of procedures is that um, we can remove um, pretty advanced um, precancerous lesions in the colon 
um, just by using our endoscopy techniques. It's called the endoscopic submucosal dissection. It's a very fancy term, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> but it's <laughs> essentially some of these patients and typically in the past, they would have to have their colon resected like that part of the colon resected in order to remove that lesion, but we can now do it endoscopically. Um, and obviously it doesn't have, to, it can't be cancer, like actual cancer. There are, you know, uh, restrictions to that, but what was traditionally done surgically, now we can do endoscopically. So that's really cool. What, how would somebody get one of those hernias? Like what causes that? Oh, um, many things. I think, um, a lot of people can just develop them over time. Some of them have like a, just a genetic predisposition or like a family history of hernias. Sometimes, I mean, like if you've had abdominal surgeries it might increase the risk of like your stomach, just kind of going, you know, past the area where it's supposed to create a barrier. So, um, there's no like hardcore risk factor as to why people develop this. They just develop them. And then, you know, the the most important thing is that um, repairing these hernias is important uh, because if you have ongoing acid reflux, that acid exposure can really damage the cells in your esophagus and, you know, uh, cause like precancerous type cells and also symptoms like, you know, it's a quality of life thing. You want you want to repair something that's causing a lot of symptoms. Well, I have acid reflux. So now naturally, I think I have this. And <laughs> I know there's a, a, a term for that when you um, see, hear about some medical diagnosis and you think, oh my God, I have that. I have all of those symptoms. Is that something that happens to med students? You have no idea. <laughs> it, it happens all of the time. And I think I must have di tried diagnosing myself like with 15 different things in the first like six months of like medical school. So I, definitely, I mean, you, once you hear about something you're like, Oh, I have this symptom. Do I have cancer? Like, and then you like go down this like rabbit hole and then you look up on WebMD, which is not a good resource by the way, but <laughs> you look on WebMD and you're just like, Oh my God, I have cancer. And then, you know, you fall into this whole thing. So yeah, um, yeah it definitely happens a lot more, even to us. Like <laughs> I would think so because I'm not always reading any kind of medical materials. Right. So, but when I do, or if I'm sick or something and I, you know, refer to Dr. Google, then <laughs> that's when I see it. Like, Oh my God, I have all this stuff. It's either a cold or I'm going to die. Yeah, pretty much. It's like a black hole. It's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do, you do one thing or the, otherwise, if you don't do this, you're like, here on the other side. So yes. And, and the worst is to just, you know, have a headache or, or have flu like symptoms. Cause it seems like that could be anything, <laughs> anything. I, you know, I think the beauty of medicine in general is like, you know, yes, we hear about these symptoms and, you know, we use like the whole picture. We use like what you're telling us, how it's happening, when is it happening, what triggers it. And then we also use the lab data, we use the images, we use everything in our power to come up with this reason why, you know, whatever is happening to you is happening to you. And, and this is something I also tell medical students, because I'm just like, look, you're going to learn all of this stuff. And you're going to, you're going to, for your exams, it's going to be like, okay, if this person has X, Y, and Z, then they have this, right. But in real life, that is not the case. Like you, you have patterns, of like things that occur together in, you know, in synchrony. And 
but they could be totally unrelated or they could be totally related and you don't know. But the, the part of the diagnostic work off is, you know, getting the test done and making sure there isn't anything serious. And, you know, if there isn't anything serious, the thing in GI that we always focus about is like, is this cancer, right? Mm. Um, and I think naturally anyone comes to the doctor, if they're having a symptom, you know, the, 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 in the way back of their mind, they're thinking, is any of this cancer, right? And I think your concerns are our concerns and our concerns are your concerns. So it's like, um, that's the first thing we always try to rule out is cancer. But then, you know, there are functional diseases that we uh, are apt at treating and we use medications, we use lifestyle changes and, you know, um, yeah. That's pretty much it. I just, I think I just went on a tangent there. <laughs> oh no, it was a good tangent. I, I enjoyed it. Tangent away. So do you ever get people that come in and go, well, I, I saw this on the internet and you know, I think this is what I have or, you know, cause I get pa I, patients, I get clients all the time that will tell me, you know, how I should handle their case based upon something that they <laughs> saw on the internet, which is frustrating. Do you get that? All the time. I mean, I, I think, you know, being an, a professional in any career, you're going to, now that we have Dr. Google or, you know, um, Judge Google or something like that, you know, you have uh, people who are obviously are rightfully doing whatever research they can. And I think part of the, part of what separates you from the internet is that you have experience, you have accurate resources and data and stuff like that. So I try to understand, um, my approach usually is to try to understand what they think and why they think this and um, go through the steps as to why it could be what they're thinking or not what they're thinking or what we need to do to further evaluate to figure out what it is. And I think that kind of like working with someone rather than telling them, oh no, it's not this. Like. I, I almost never use like absolute statements mm -hmm. because I think, again, like I mentioned, like nothing is perfect in medicine, nothing's perfect in the world. And it could always be something, you know, that you're concerned about extremely rarely. But, you know, I think that's just kind of where I go about it. So do you like the aspect of like when somebody comes in and they're kind of like a puzzle that you have to figure out, you know, what's going on and you get to use toys sometimes to do it? Yes, absolutely. I think I think that's what also drives a lot of people to go into medicine. It's like having that challenge. Um, because I feel like if if it was easy, I mean, if I feel like if anything in life was easy, it, you wouldn't appreciate what you have or how you're doing it when you're there, right? It, I think yeah, it's more of a um, uh, we're trained to to think this way. Um, our medical, when you go into medical school, you're trained to be like, okay, look, it just, just because this person has this one symptom doesn't mean it's this. You have to take all this information, synthesize it, put it together. And the two same people with the same symptoms might not have the same diagnosis, which is, which is interesting, right? Because, yeah. you know, you, you, you learn through pattern recognition, you learn through all of these things, but part of the beauty of, you know, what you do and also what I do is figuring out that piece of the puzzle and figuring out that, that piece that where, you know, you could really help them. If you find it, then you could really help them. 
What are some of the other things that you're seeing, you know, as far as quality of life for people? Because something that I've been maybe more attuned to recently, I don't know if it's more of a thing or if I'm just noticing it more, is um, things like IBS. And I'm kind of wondering if that has anything to do with the quality of the food that we either we're eating or maybe what we have access to. Do you have any thoughts about that? So in terms of what we're seeing more frequently in GI that is documented at least, or there's data behind it is we are seeing colorectal cancer more often and we're seeing it in younger people. And, you know, one, it begs the question, you know, what changed in the last 50 years that now we're seeing it all of a sudden? Is it that we're diagnosing it more because we have the tools to diagnose it or we have like the more specific tests? Or is it that people are just having these diseases and more people are having these diseases? So um, that's one thing we are seeing. Um more frequently in terms of IBS. And I know I, I, I definitely, we talked about this earlier, but I think, you know, it's hard to say whether it's increasing in prevalence or even incidence, but I have, so with, with IBS, particularly some people can be really prone to developing IBS if they have a history of, you know, antibiotic use and they have infections after antibiotic use. And as you and I both very well know, we treat antibiotics for with every, I mean, we give antibiotics for everything these days, even though it's not, you know, a lot of times not even warranted. So you can just imagine a scenario where you're giving antibiotics, you're killing off, you know, the, the good gut bacteria, and you're creating a situation that's a little hostile for the GI, for the GI tract. And in though in that situation, you can have IBS like symptoms, you can have um, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain, cramping. And I, I am seeing this and I, the, the, the gender, there is a gender, um, preference in IBS. There are more women and more young women, um, with IBS, but I'm actually, um, anecdotally, I don't have any data about this, but anecdotally, I am seeing even young males coming to me with IBS. And, um, what is a trigger? We, you know, it, it's a culmination of things. There's genetic uh, reasons why people, some people have IBS in their entire family, you know, and, but some people have traumatic life experiences or very stressful situations. And it just, some, something, something does it where it just alters the gut microbiome environment. And that's it. You throw yourself, your gut into a spiral. One of the ways I, I do counsel patients to improve or like reduce the risk of, you know, suffering from, gut disorders is, you know, their diet. And you mentioned processed foods, what we're eating. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. There's, there's definitely something that's happening in these foods that, you know, the classic American diet is, is promoting uh, in, in our gut. And it's, it's not, and it's not creating a nice environment. Like we're not liking it at all. And, yeah. you know, even the tobacco exposure and all of this stuff, I mean, um, it does beg the question. I mean, we have to definitely feed our gut with with good, good whole foods, right? And um, that includes like fruits, veggies, fiber, you know, and reduction of high sugar, processed. All of these things will will do your gut 
really, really um, good. Um, what about you? How do you eat? <laughs> Are you plant-based? Um, I'm not entirely plant-based. I am converting slowly. I mean, I do have, um, I like seafood a lot. So I, I, um, aside from seafood, I mainly, uh, I mainly eat veg vegetables, like uh, whole veggies. Um, I do, I do, uh, drink milk. <laughs> I, I do like milk. And I think, um, I do realize like whenever I do have like daily dairy products, I feel like a little bit more congested or I feel like mm. more lethargic. So that's something I'm working on cutting off. And I think it's like being a South Asian, you know, I, it, dairy is very heavy in our diet. So um, I'm definitely working on that. But yeah. Um, I like cheese. I love hard. Yeah, you do. I, it would be hard for me to cut out cheese. Um, I actually just interviewed one of your colleagues and I think you had done um, some kind of um, podcast or something with her, Dr. Supriya Rao. Yeah, she's amazing. We've done a few um, kind of IG lives together because um, she's an attending gastroenterologist and I'm a GI fellow and um, just kind of sharing our experiences about women in medicine, women in GI. It was really, she's, she's amazing. Yeah, I really enjoyed my conversation with her and, and we did talk about nutrition and eating plant-based and, you know, I was like, well, can I eat cheese? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think she really um, approved of the cheese, but, um, you know, <laughs> so I thought I could ask you and maybe get a different answer. <laughs> it's a hard lifestyle to, um, part of your lifestyle to change. And I think I mean, there's so many good cheeses out there. I'm not going to lie. Like, I mean, one of my favorite cheeses is uh, Midnight Moon. And I, I, you know, I'm not promoting cheeses here on a podcast, but yes, <laughs> I really like cheese. So it does. I mean, it's hard. And, and obviously do what is comfortable for you. I, you know, you don't have to completely cut it out because I think that kind of impacts whether you'd adhere to such a diet at all you know, in the future and not even you, just like other people, me personally, if you told me I had to cut out dairy or cheese, maybe I'd be able to do it for like a week, but then I'd go back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, is it the kind of thing that you could just limit your intake or is it like, well, if you're having it at all, you know, it's, you're still getting the, the disadvantages of it. So if you're going to eat it, you may as well indulge. <laughs> I, I actually don't know it, the answer to that question. If like the quantity matters uh, rather than just like sheer just having exposure to the, yeah, I don't know. But I, I, I do notice like people who do have like healthier lifestyles, they, they have better gut health than others. Yes. Um, Dr. Rao had recommended a documentary that she saw called Changemakers. I don't know if you've seen that. And I watched it last night and it's about these elite athletes that are completely plant-based and, you know, they did blood work on them and, and they made all these findings, how the athletes that were eating plant-based were just overall healthier and able to do more and able to recover faster. And so, you know, naturally I watched them. I got, that's it. I need to be plant-based. And then I woke up the next morning and I had eggs. So I'm like, well, maybe tomorrow I'll start that. <laughs> I think it's just baby steps. I, and that's yeah. something I can tell myself. I tell my patients, like, 
it's whatever you're comfortable doing. And then if that's even the steps that you end up taking and that's the end of it, then that's something. I mean, that's something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering though, because of, you know, even if you're not eating processed food, right? Even if you're not eating something out of a box, there's still some debate about, well, are whatever food you're getting, even if it's in the produce aisle, are there pesticides and, you know, how have they actually grown those plants? And maybe those aren't really all that healthy either. So I don't know what, what is the medical community saying about that? Um, I think something is better than nothing in, in our minds. I mean, it's, we, this is, this is obviously like if you trust certain like fruit brands, um, or supermarkets or stores or local stores, like, um, that sell more like, um, whole, wholesome foods or like wholesale foods, um, fruits, then, um, that's something that you can definitely explore. But I don't know if we have like a consensus, obviously, you know, trying definitely going organic rather than the non-organic option, even though it might be a little more pricey. It's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something, but, um, especially people who live in food deserts, it's really, it's, it's like, it's easier said than done, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're asking your patients who might come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ideas of food, different understanding of like, what's a healthy meal, you know, and you're, you're working backwards. So I think um, the, as long as there is something like, if you go to the supermarket, and you see a green apple, just grab that, like the pesticides and all that other talk it's yeah it's something that obviously is in back of our minds but i think like that's what if that's what you have then that's better than yeah. the alternative yeah it's not an argument for just you know saying screw it i'm just gonna buy the oreos instead i mean right probably still better to have the apple <laughs> yeah. um, and take your chances with the apple but i'm wondering is are a lot of the things that you treat are they sort of curable um if you will with a better diet so, so some, a lot of things in GI are not curable, um, but they are treatable and manageable and somewhat reversible, I would say, depending on what, what you're looking at. So, um, things like IBD, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, these are chronic conditions. They're lifelong diseases and you need to be on lifelong therapy. There's no like cure per se. Mm -hmm. Um, but say like you had like a, like a colon cancer and like it was early enough, that's curable because you can resect it. You can treat it with chemotherapy and, you know, be done with it. Um, things like cirrhosis. So like scarring down the liver, depending on the, um, the stage at which you're looking at, like if it's more advanced stage cirrhosis, then likely not reversible, you know, just managing the complications is a lifelong chronic illness. You know, is it curable? No, but it is treatable and it's partially reversible if you catch it early enough. Um, How would you catch something like that? Um, lab testing, Im sometimes images really give you an idea, although not super sensitive, but a lot of the, like the early lab markers of something like that, we do, uh, we're on the lookout for, um, especially for people who have risk factors, like they drink alcohol, they have a family history, or they have um, known, uh, they had hepatitis, 
um, or their liver tests are elevated. So we're always on the lookout for things and always trying to make sure that we're, you know, we're giving that uh, proper uh, advice for our patients. Yeah, I've always wondered, you know, if there's certain diseases, I can't remember what any of them are, where you just kind of find out that you have it. And it's, it's the sort of thing you don't know you have until it's too late to do anything about it. I'm sort of thinking pancreatic cancer. I don't know why if that's one of them. And I always think, why don't we just all get a body scan, you know, once a year? You know, and that's such a good question. And I, I actually asked the same question to like my professor went in medical school, because I was just like, we're always so worried about cancer, right? We're always worried about all of this stuff. Like, why don't we just like scan everybody? And what happens is that sometimes a lot of times, actually, people have incidental findings, meaning like they have incidental, like, you know, a spot here and a spot there and like really means nothing. It means absolutely can I curse? Just kidding. Yes. <laughs> Jack. Um, <laughs> it means nothing. And um, that leads to unnecessary stress, unnecessary testing. And then, you know, the spiral goes on. We live in a day and age right now that you go into an emergency room and you complain of abdominal pain, you're getting a CAT scan, you know, and that that's just the reality of medicine. And, you know, it's, it's a product of you, all the other issues of medicine that have come to the forefront. But you get a casket. And a lot of times, actually, I even get referrals from from, you know, ED doctors who are just like, Oh, like, I saw this thickening in the esophagus, or I saw this thickening in the stomach. And like, obviously, you know, the next step would be to take an endoscopy, like an endoscope and take a look and make sure there isn't anything serious there. Half the time we find nothing. Right. But that but that person underwent anesthesia, they went underwent a procedure, but you can't say with certainty that there isn't because the other half time you are finding something right. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, you know, um, uh, shoot me if I know shoot me if I don't that kind of thing. I don't know if I said that correctly. But Dan, I know what you mean. Yeah, like yeah, damned if you do damned if you don't. There it is that that that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, you don't know. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? I mean, you always know what the right thing to do was when you look back. Absolutely. All right, so I guess I'm not going to get the full body scan once a year. <laughs> um, so one of the things when we, we um, spoke before we actually did this interview, I told you that I wanted to talk about um, like if you watch television and medical shows and if you know, you find them to just be so unrealistic if you just cannot watch them. What's your experience with that? I think it's a little bit of both. I'm not someone who ever watched House or Scrubs. Like I, those are TV shows that I didn't even know about. And like, I didn't have the time to even watch TV when I was like, you know, hustling through school. But um, um, I've seen some of the newer ones. And I don't know, I think I have like mixed feelings about a lot of them. Um, some of my mixed feelings originate from like representation of like the doctor. And although I am seeing more representation of like people of color and, and like people of different genders and like, you know, different um, uh, like pronoun, I mean, like that's happening, but I still think that the, like some of these shows can do a little bit better at, in not glorifying medicine. And I don't think a lot of the, 
the what what's what they show some of these residents doing they have like a resident in the ed and then they have that same resident in the or doing a procedure and then the same residents on the floor and the medicine floor and i'm like this is not reality at all but it's better for the storyline um it is and i guess it makes things more simple just to kind of like i guess for people to wrap their head, head around it but i think a lot of us in medicine just kind of chuckle about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't know the difference, but I have the same problem when I watch legal shows because, you know, they'll conduct a trial in a way that's not realistic and shouldn't be allowed. And, you know, it's like, stop doing that. <laughs> I want to um, end our interview with a question about your reading experience. I hope I gave you a heads up on this one. Cause I, I might've forgotten. Um, are there any books that you've read that have made a real impact on you in your lifetime? Um, I think so. Um, thank you for actually, um, you know, giving me this question ahead of time because it, it made me think a little bit, but it ended up being the same answer I was going to answer anyway. It was um, there are these, I, I like poetry and I actually like uh, a lot of short stories and prose and I, I write um, poetry as well uh, in prose form. But um, one poet so it's not necessarily like an author like a, a an author of like a fiction novel or something but it's a poet um and she her name is Rupi Kaur and she um I, I'm sure you've seen like some of the things I've posted on my probably stories about her and her work and um she uh really inspires me um her she has three books the sun and her flowers milk and honey um and then uh her most recent one I haven't had a chance to read, but I, the reason why I like her, her work is that it kind of speaks to me in more, more than just like me being a, a female or a doctor, you know, I think a lot of physicians like medical books and they like, you know, the, the, the ones that were written by surgeons or like doctors. And I, I think those books were great too, but um, she speaks about kind of like the human condition and like the role of um, being a woman in society, being a woman in it, coming from like a like a first generation South Asian background and having that dichotomy between, you know, the present and the past and the future. And the, there's just so many elements that inspire me about her work that I um, I really like reading, reading what she what she puts out there um and I don't know it's 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 a little some sometimes maybe some people might find it to be a little graphic but me personally I I um I like poetry like that that you know is very direct and it's very in your face and it's, it's very palpable so like Maya Angelou or even Audre Lorde those are also some of my inspirations so um as you can tell I definitely like very strong women voices mm -hmm. Um, and it's, I don't know, just something that speaks to me and it kind of gets me through my day or my week. And just knowing that whatever I felt can be, can be written or can be translated in that way. It was really nice. Well, thank you for sharing that. I have seen Rupee all over Instagram, not just on your page, but all over. There's always some quote floating around. Um, and she's also very popular at Barnes and Noble. Yeah. <laughs> She is. Oh my God. I love, I love her books. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our talk and I, I could go on, you know, for more hours just asking you silly questions about med school and whatnot. But thank you for indulging me. Oh, thank you for indulging me. This was really exciting as well. Well, I really enjoy it because I did the Fem Squire series where I interviewed um, some incredible women attorneys and now I'm interviewing a lot of incredible women doctors and it's been really nice to learn about what it's like for you in a completely different profession. And you're all fabulous, you know, just so intelligent and so passionate about what you do. And I, that's really inspiring. That's so, so nice of you to say, but honestly, the compliment goes right back to you. I, I really like what you're doing here. And I really like that um, that your your platform is very all inclusive and it's and it's like open forum and it's really nice just kind of having that type of conversation with someone that um, wants to know more about what we do and vice versa. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I will take the compliment. <laughs> And um, if there's ever anything that you ever want to promote, like just awareness to a particular issue or, you know, whatever the case may be, don't be afraid to reach out to me. And for our viewers, I will have a link in the show notes to your Instagram page. And I highly recommend that people check it out. Even if you don't have any burning desire to learn about GI issues, you know, it, it's still entertaining. Thank you so, so much for having me again. And yes, I will definitely keep you in mind if I have any sort of PSAs around the corner. So <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.